Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. If you remain standing, turning your Bibles once again this morning to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And let me read our text. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 38. You'll follow along as I begin now in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where we read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. In preparation for our study of the book of Ephesians as part of our introduction uh, to the book, we've taken a number of weeks now to look at Acts chapters 19 and 20. Chapter 19, we looked at Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, which, as we've said, is helpful for understanding the background and beliefs of the people who became Christians and made up the churches of of Ephesus. This morning, we'll finish a three-part study in Acts 20, specifically verses 17 to 38, and Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders, which really completes our look at Paul's ministry to the Ephesians. In these verses, we get a unique picture of Paul the pastor and what was important to him as a leader and and shepherd of God's people. As we said earlier, here is Paul, the older, battle-scarred pastor, reminding the elders of his character and way of life when he had been with them. I mean, he's clearly defending himself while at the same time pouring out his heart to the younger pastors who are going to carry on the work. And these are Paul's last words of instruction to the Ephesian elders. And you'll remember it, it's divided into four parts. In verses 17 to 21, Paul reviewed the past. He reminded the elders of what kind of man he was and of his ministry among them for three years. He reminded them of his motive for ministry, serving the Lord, of his method of ministry. He served with all humility, tears, and many trials. He also reminded them of the message he preached and that he held nothing back. He declared to them everything that was profitable. And then in verses 22 to 27, which we looked at last week, Paul turned from the past to his present circumstances, telling the Ephesian elders of his trip to Jerusalem and the sufferings that awaited him there. He was compelled by the Spirit to to go not knowing what would happen to him, only that the Spirit testified to him in every city that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And Paul's courage and perseverance in the face of these trials that awaited him in Jerusalem would have silenced and stopped many, but not Paul. Because Paul didn't consider self-preservation his primary motivation. 
He was a man of humility who was willing to put the interest of others ahead of his own. Thus, he was determined to finish his course in the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul then said to them in verses 25 to 27, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When Paul looked at his life, he could say with a clear conscience that he had faithfully declared the whole counsel of God, and therefore he was innocent of the blood of all men. He had made sure that all people were warned about God's judgment and that they heard the gospel, and so if they rejected the gospel then, he wasn't responsible for their condemnation. And Paul had served with these men for for three years, but now his work with them was done. And he had every reason to believe that this was the last time that he would ever see them this side of heaven. But there were some vitally important issues that he needed to speak to them about. So now in verses 28 to 38, Paul turns to the future. And he brings his farewell message to a close by warning the Ephesian elders of the dangers the churches would face. Dangers that today as elders must recognize and deal with if they were going to protect and lead the church. And he tells them how utterly crucial their role is in the survival and and health of the church when he's gone. And then he prays with them and and bids bids them farewell. So having looked back to his ministry in Ephesus, which they knew, and on to his coming sufferings and separation from them, which he knew, Paul now gives them his final charge. Let's look now at verse 28, where Paul charges them to keep watch over themselves and over the congregation. Notice verse 28. Paul writes, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul begins verse 28 with, Pay careful attention. It can be translated, Be on guard. And then in verse 31, at the end of this paragraph, it begins with, therefore, be alert, or be on your guard. And it pictures someone alert on the lookout, you know, someone standing guard. And the point is simply that the paragraph begins and ends with a call to be vigilant. Pastors and elders, like a man on guard duty, must be alert, awake, with eyes wide open, watchful, paying careful attention, not abandoning their post. And this, this image of being on guard duty is a powerful one in any time or culture because it obviously implies that there are active enemies. And this is Paul's way of saying that the church is always a threatened church because Satan never takes vacations. Sin lurks at the door waiting for the moment of doctrinal or moral carelessness. And Paul is deeply concerned that these leaders may fail because they lack the necessary constant, continual vigilance. And therefore, the command for the elders is, pay careful attention, be on guard, be alert, stay awake, watch. Well, watch what? Well, Paul applies our vigilance in two ways. Pastors and elders must first pay careful attention to themselves and secondly, the church. So first, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. In other words, each of you must first take care of or attend to your own heart, your own life, your own behavior, your own doctrine. And it's not surprising that Paul begins with this because he spent half this message talking about his own life and work. And his point is, it matters what kind of person the elder is, not just what he believes. And so the first command of the elders is to pay careful attention to your own life and spiritual condition. The first priority for anyone involved in spiritual leadership is his own life and relationship with the Lord. I mean, this is just the the most basic ingredient in the ministry. Because if you cannot adequately care for others, or you cannot adequately care for others if you neglect the spiritual care and well-being of your own soul. I mean, no one is ready to face the pressures and responsibilities of ministry who is not right with God, because those pressures, as well as the demand to set the example, require that leaders constantly 
Be vigilant and on guard. As Robert Murray McShane said, what my people need most from me is my personal holiness. And I think Paul agrees. That's why this comes first. You know, a pastor or, or, or elder's first duty to the church is to be a certain kind of person. And so Paul is saying, pay careful attention to your own life. Make sure you're in constant fellowship and communion with the Lord. Make sure you're paying close attention to your spiritual health and well-being. And this is, this is absolutely essential to spiritual leadership. I mean, Paul wrote to Timothy when he was pastoring the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4 verse 16. He said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist, he said, in this. So Paul exhorted Timothy to scrutinize his own life and his teaching to make sure both were what they should be. Both were in line with his calling. Both were honoring to God. And the first priority for those involved in spiritual leadership is their own life and personal relationship with the Lord, their teaching, their doctrine, because if the leaders fail, the whole church suffers. And so Paul is is basically warning the Ephesian elders not to neglect nurturing their own personal relationship with the Lord, their, their own walk with Him, their own personal and, and private behavior. You see, this is, a, this is a real danger for anyone involved in ministry and Christian service. Because if we're not careful, we can find ourselves so busy doing the work and, and all the things necessary for the church to function that, that it may be at the expense of your own walk with the Lord. And that can be devastating. Because effective ministry is not merely outward activity. Rather, it is the overflow of an intimate relationship with the Lord. And of course, the more time we spend with the Lord, the more we become like Him. And the more we become like Christ, the more effective we are in ministry. Again, to quote Robert Murray McShane, uh, this is an often quoted charge he made to a minister friend that, that still resonates. He, he said, do not forget the culture of the heart. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success, or will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And so we're to pay careful attention to ourselves first. And this is true not only for those in Christian ministry and service, this is true for any Christian. And why do I say that? Because of this. You will never be the mom or dad, you know, the husband or wife, the brother or sister, the employee or employer the Bible calls you to unless you are actively cultivating your own personal relationship with the Lord. And you can get so busy, so caught up in just living life that you neglect your own walk. And we so easily forget that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek those things first. But those things first, those things are to be the priority in your life. And then he said, all these things, all these other things, all the, all the things you need, all these things will be added to you. I mean, we need to make sure we're cultivating our devotional life, that we're men and women of the word and prayer. You say, well, I just don't have the time. Well, I would respond to that. You will never have the time. We have to make the time. I mean, we need to make sure that we are making time to spend with the Lord privately, but also corporately for the nurturing of our faith and spiritual growth. So Paul's first charge to the Ephesian elders is to pay careful attention to yourself. They were to be vigilant in attending to their own spiritual life and behavior. I mean, Paul had taught them. Not only had he taught them, Paul had set the example for them by his own life. And so what happened from this point on was their responsibility. Secondly, looking back at verse 28, Paul charged them, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves, and then he says, to all the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves, and then to all the flock. And so after making sure their own lives are in order and their, and their relationship to God strong, Paul exhorts them to pay careful attention or to watch over, to be on ever watchful guard duty over all of the flock. This is the, the second priority of the pastors and elders, the spiritual care of the flock. 
And of course, the metaphor of a flock and a shepherd is often used to describe God's relationship to his people. And as one commentator said, it's an apt one, since sheep are helpless, timid, dirty, and in need of constant protection and care. I mean, it's not flattering to be called a sheep, but that's what the Lord refers to us as, sheep. And the Old Testament frequently describes Israel as God's flock, and the New Testament pictures the church as a flock with the Lord Jesus Christ as its shepherd. And of course, speaking of himself, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in using the image of a flock and its shepherd, Paul is telling the Ephesian elders to imitate Christ. To imitate Christ in laying down their own lives for the sheep. I mean, like a shepherd with his sheep, the elders were to pay careful attention to the flock. They were to watch over them, pay attention to their health, not let them wander off. They were to defend them from enemies. And notice it says, all the flock. There's no favoritism here. All the flock. Not just the rich, but also the poor. Not just the old, but also the young. Not just the healthy sheep, but also the sick. Not just the strong, but also the weak. Not just the responsive, but also the unresponsive. Not just the faithful, but also the wayward. All the sheep. And what, what's the motivation for them to do this? Well, a couple of things. First of all, as Paul reminds these Ephesian elders, if you'll look back at verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit made, literally, in the Greek, it has appointed them as overseers. So God had called and appointed these men to watch over his flock. We need to make careful note of the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who sovereignly calls and appoints men as overseers. This is not a position men take for themselves. Men are not elected or chosen for the position by popular vote, by a committee, or a congregation. Congregational rule which minimizes the biblical authority of pastors and elders in favor of a cultural, democratic process is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. So men are not elected as pastors and elders, and they certainly are not chosen because of their wealth and social position, their business skills and success, or their natural abilities. Because none of these things equip a man for the work of watching over and caring for the flock of God. Men are called and equipped by God for this work. Paul said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And we know from Scripture that if someone has truly been called, that that calling and the necessary gifting will be recognized and then affirmed by the leadership of the church. And so Paul reminds these men that the Holy Spirit had called them to this position of great responsibility. And therefore, they were to make sure that they actually did the job to which they had been called. And what was that job? Well, look back at verse 28, they were to care for the church of God. And the words care for translate one Greek word, poimino, which means to feed, pasture, tend the flock, to direct. It can be translated shepherd or pastor, which emphasizes the task of feeding or teaching. It's a comprehensive term that encompasses the entire task of a shepherd, which consists of leading and guiding the sheep, grooming them, guarding them, going before them. He knows the sheep by name. He fends for them, fights for them, gathers them into the fold. But the most important task of the shepherd is feeding the sheep. Feeding the sheep, leading them beside still waters, taking them into green pastures. You know, in John chapter 21, uh, Jesus instructed Peter three times to care for the sheep. And two of the three times he told Peter to feed the sheep. He said, feed my lambs. And then he said the second time, feed the sheep, feed my sheep. And so it is of primary importance that the men that God has placed in churches as under shepherds or pastors and elders feed the sheep and feed them God's word. And so the first idea behind being a shepherd is feeding God's people. But sadly, many under-shepherds today are not feeding the sheep. 
They're misleading the sheep. And others are fleecing the sheep. With feigned words, they're making merchandise of the word of God. They're peddling the word of God, so to speak. They're fleecing the sheep, but they're not feeding the sheep. I mean, rather than leading them into the green pastures of God's word, they're taking them into the barren wastelands of experience and emotion. Or of the health and prosperity gospel, or of pop psychology. Or the barren wastelands of critical race theory and social justice, of of progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. Or the wastelands of cold, dead orthodoxy. Or the many other false teachings blowing through the church today. And so consequently, there are many spiritually weak and sick flocks. And you can have weak and and sick sheep even in a good Bible teaching church. Why? Well, like the old adage, you can lead a horse, but let's say a sheep. You can lead a sheep to water, but you can't make him drink. Pastors and elders are to do their work with great diligence and all seriousness. Because what we've been called to is not merely a title and a position. It is not merely a job. It is not merely a profession among other professions like a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer, etc. You see, there is laid upon the pastor and elders of the church of Christ a responsibility that is unique in all of the world. And Paul really stresses how high the stakes are in this work. And the second motivation for pastors and elders to watch over and take care of the flock, to feed the flock with the utmost seriousness and diligence, is because the flock is not theirs, but God's. It's a flock, notice verse 28, which he, which God obtained with his own blood. The church, the flock of God was obtained or purchased with Christ's own blood. And so we we ought to be motivated to be very careful how we take care of the flock. You know, the church of God. Why? Because Christ died for it. He died for it. And this should have a profound effect upon pastors and elders. It should humble us to remember, first of all, the church isn't ours. And secondly, it ought to remind us how valuable the flock is in God's sight. The church is God's flock. They are the flock of God the Father, purchased by the blood of God the Son, and cared for by overseers appointed by the Holy Spirit. And if the three persons of the Trinity are committed to the care of the flock, shouldn't pastors and elders be also? If Christ died for them, shouldn't we look after them? Since Jesus has done and suffered so much for their salvation and has made us a co-worker with him, will we we refuse to do or do poorly or half-heartedly the job that he has given us to do? I mean, it is certainly some food for thought especially in light of the fact that one day those who lead the flock of God will give an account to God for how they led and cared for those he placed in their care. Believers are the flock of God. They're a little flock. Defenseless and often despised by the world, but they are infinitely precious to God. In fact, the church is the most valuable and precious asset on earth. You realize that? The church is the most precious and valuable asset on earth because Christ Jesus paid the ultimate price for it. And so we should all treat the church as the precious fellowship that it is. Let me ask you, Is the church precious to you? And is the church precious to you? Are the other members of the flock precious to you? If they are worth Christ's blood, are they worth your compassion and concern? 
Are they worth your time, your efforts, your service, your fellowship, your prayers? If the church as a whole and its individual members are so precious to God, shouldn't they be precious to you and I? And it should put absolute fear into our hearts to do anything that would in any way disparage the church or harm the church of God in any way. So Paul charges the Ephesian elders to watch over the precious flock of God. If God Almighty, sinless and free and high above all things, was willing to shed the blood of his Son for a sinful, messed up, unworthy church, And pastors and elders must be willing to pour out blood, sweat, and tears in season and out of season for the flock of God. And every believer should find it precious and valuable. Now in verses 29 to 31, after exhorting them to keep watch over themselves and over the congregation, Paul now exhorts the elders to be vigilant in guarding the flock in guarding the flock. I mean, it's not enough for a faithful shepherd to lead and feed the flock. He must also protect it from predators. And there are many predators out there today. So Paul warns them to guard against two things. First of all, false teachers who infiltrate the church from the outside. And secondly, deceivers who will arise from within the church. First of all, he warns them of false teachers that will come into the church from the outside. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It doesn't really come across so much in in our English translation, but Paul is using very strong terms here to describe these people. When he calls the perpetrators fierce or savage wolves, savage. The picture is that of the Ephesian church as a flock of helpless sheep which finds itself under the deadly attack of wolves. And as you know, the wolf is a predator. I mean, it's a fierce and and vicious animal. And in the ancient Middle East, wolves were the primary enemy of sheep and, and a constant threat to the sheep, which are defenseless against them. And so the shepherd could not afford to relax and and let his guard down, and neither can pastors and elders. You see, Jesus himself warned of false teachers when he said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus says false teachers will come. And they will come, they will come in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're going to come into the church looking like real sheep looking like everybody else. But the fact is, inwardly, there's something entirely different. You see, being a wolf is a matter of the heart on, what, on what's on the inside, not of outward appearance. A false teacher doesn't walk into the church looking like a false teacher. Doesn't come in and announce that he's a false teacher or, or she. And Paul describes him in 2 Corinthians as false apostles, deceitful workmen who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. He refers to them as servants of Satan who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But as Jesus said, it, outwardly they, they appear to be sheep, but inwardly, fact is, they are ravenous wolves. And do you know what a ravenous wolf does to sheep? He tears them to pieces. He tears them to pieces and eats them. He doesn't feed the sheep. He feeds on the sheep. Paul is warning the Ephesian elders that after he leaves, false teachers, dangerous people who are treacherous, unholy, irreverent, disrespectful, will come into the congregation, presumably from other churches, who will not spare the believers. They're going to come into the church looking like sheep, but eventually their words and deeds will expose them for what they really are. 
They are false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing who are out for personal glory and gain and not for the glory of Christ. And if they are not dealt with and dealt with severely, they will devastate and destroy the flock just as a wolf destroys unguarded sheep. So Paul warns pastors and elders about the wolves he knows will come in after he leaves and devastate Christ's flock as they already had at Corinth and in the churches of Galatia. So he exhorts the Ephesian elders to recognize the danger that false teachers from outside pose, and to prevent such people from having any influence in the congregation. But Paul's concern was not only with the attacks from outside the body, but also the deceit arising from within the body. Paul now charges them to protect the flock from deceivers who will try to exert influence from within the church. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Just as there was a Judas among the twelve apostles, there are Judases in the church today. And Paul says these people would arise from among your own selves. I mean, from within the church, perhaps meaning uh, even from among this very group of elders. So here Paul warns about people within the church whose motives for being in the church are self-centered. They're people who want to use the church to promote themselves. People within the church who are ambitious for position and power, who have their own personal agenda. And you'll notice Paul says these people will be speaking twisted things for the purpose of drawing away the disciples after them. Now that, that the word translated twisted things uh, sometimes is translated as perverse things. From that, we, we can easily get the idea by our common use of the word, uh, the term perverse today, that, that they would be teaching immoral ideas, you know, the sort of thing that, that even a child could recognize. But the word actually means something different. It means something that is twisted or distorted. In other words, it's talking about a a slight alteration or perversion of the truth. It's it's taking something true, but kind of reshaping its meaning or or twisting its meaning or, or giving it a false application or manipulating it Uh, to say something other than its intended meaning. You would hear from these people, well, yes, that's what the Bible says, but, but. And then there's either excuses or explanations. And while the teaching of the ravenous wolves would be brazen and easy to to recognize, the kind of teaching or speaking Paul refers to here is deceitful. And it's much harder to recognize. And it takes discernment in knowing people and understanding the word of God to see the, the subtle shading of God's word to give it alternative meanings, meanings which God did not intend. And the purpose of this, as Paul says, is to draw away or to lure or to entice believers away from the church after themselves. Why? Well, because they want a following of their own. They want people to follow them, to come with them. And a great example of this in the Old Testament is Absalom, King David's son. While David was in the palace taking care of business, Absalom sat at the gate of the city, you know, saying to those who came by, hey, you know what, David doesn't have time to hear your problems, but I do. You know, David doesn't really care about you like, like I do. And if I were in his position, things would be a whole lot different. But what was he doing? He was sowing discord among the people by subtly questioning David's ability to lead for the purpose of drawing the hearts of the people away from David to himself. Of course, you know the story. Ultimately, Absalom launched a full-scale rebellion against his own father and drove David from the palace. But you also know the rest of the story. 
Absalom was killed and David was restored to his rightful place on the throne. However, the damage was done. And as a result of Absalom's deception, many of God's flock lost their lives in following after him. And so we see the destructiveness of those who rise up from within and and twist the truth, alter the truth, manipulate the truth as they seek to draw believers away that they might gain a following and destroy the church. And, And tragically, this kind of activity always results in strife, discord, and division within the church. And in his letter to the Christians in Rome, which he had just written, Paul exhorts the believers... Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You see, one of Satan's favorite methods to disrupt and destroy the church is to raise up someone within the church who is self-seeking. And church history, and, uh, or church history, ancient and modern, is just filled with accounts of people like Diotrephes, who the Apostle John warned in, in 3 John 9-11, to loved to have the preeminence. He loved to have the preeminence. One commentator wrote, Let me just mention one feature to watch out for in the recognition of wolves and deceivers. As I have watched the movement from biblical faithfulness to liberalism in persons and institutions that I have known over the years, this feature stands out. An emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed and an emotional preoccupation with what is new or fashionable or relevant in the eyes of the world. Let's try to say it another way. When this feature is prevalent, you don't get the impression that a person really longs to bring his mind and heart into conformity to fixed biblical truth. Instead, you see the desire to picture biblical truth as unfixed, fluid, indefinable, distant, and accessible, and so open to the trends of the day. So what marks a possible wolf in the making is not simply that he rejects or accepts any particular biblical truth, but that he isn't deeply oriented in the Bible. He is more oriented on experience. He isn't captured by the great old faith once for all delivered to the saints. Instead, he is enamored by what is new and innovative. A good elder can be creative, but the indispensable mark when it comes to doctrinal fitness is faithfulness to what is fixed in Scripture, disciplined, humble submission to the particular affirmations of the Bible, carefully and reverently studied and explained and cherished. When that spirit begins to go, There is a wolf or a deceiver in the making. And so knowing that savage wolves are waiting for an opening to attack the flock, knowing that deceivers will rise up within the church, Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to recognize the danger that false teachers and deceivers will pose for the congregation and to prevent them from teaching and from creating subgroups and division within the church and from dragging the sheep away after themselves. And the church has always faced grave dangers of false teachers and deceivers who would lure people from the fold. And pastors and elders must stand in the gap against such threat and dangers. And if pastors and elders were needed 1,900 years ago for this task, then they are certainly uh, needed uh, today, in fact, even more so. And so Paul warns there was danger from without, danger from within, and the leadership must be on guard against both. Well, how were they, to, to, do, how were they to, to guard the flock and keep, from, keep this from happening? Well, they, by following the example that Paul had set for them. Notice verse 31, Paul said, Therefore be alert. So he repeats the exhortation to be alert, you know, to pay attention, be vigilant. 
And this exhortation applies both to the need to keep watch over themselves and the flock as overseers and to the need to stop false teachers from outside and deceivers on the inside. So they were to be alert to watch, wide awake as to what was going on in the church. They couldn't afford to be half asleep and let the enemy slip in. And not only were they to watch and be alert, they were also to warn. Paul now reminds the elders of his ministry among them during the three years he was in Ephesus. As he watched over the believers in the congregation, so they must be alert as they fulfill their responsibilities. He describes his ministry, notice verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The word admonish refers to giving counsel with a warning involved. And so here we have the heart of a true shepherd. He warned them night and day with tears. With tears. Well, why tears? Because Paul understood the horrible results that could occur as a result of false teachers and deceivers in the church. So Paul repeatedly warned them. In fact, night and day, he kept warning them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Be on, be on the lookout, be on your guard. The faithful shepherd must warn his flock. The shepherds of Christ's flock have a double duty. To feed the sheep by teaching the truth and to protect them from wolves by warning them of false teachers and deceivers. I mean, Paul, writing to Titus, who was a pastor, said that Titus must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those who contradict the word of God. So they were to instruct in sound doctrine and to rebuke and expose false teachers and their teaching. They were to rebuke and expose deceivers. And Paul had absolutely no problem naming the names of those who were leading God's people astray. I mean, one of the key responsibilities of the pastor and the leadership of the church is to expose these people so that naive, unsuspecting believers aren't swept away. But I don't have to tell you that this is extremely unpopular in today's politically correct church. I mean, we often hear the word to always be positive in our teaching and, and not negative. And quite honestly, people who say that have never read the New Testament. Or if they have, they disagree with it because Jesus and the apostles rebuked error and exhorted us to do the same. And they did so in no uncertain terms. Read the Old Testament about what God has to say about false teachers. I mean, one reason there is so much confusion in false teaching in the church today is because pastors and elders uh, have neglected their biblical obligation before God to stand up and refute error, and to expose false teaching and teachers. When there is false teaching and and error of any kind in the church, and pastors and elders and Christian leaders sit idly by and do nothing, or they turn tail and run, they show themselves to be nothing more than hirelings who don't care one thing about the flock of God. And then it will be said of believers under their care, as it was said of Israel in Ezekiel 34. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. And so it's important that pastors teach the word of God so the flock will know the truth and be able to detect many of these false teachers. But there is a time. When the pastor and church leaders, out of biblical obligation and faithfulness to God and his word, must refute error by exposing wolves and deceivers by name to warn and protect the flock of God. That is their obligation before God. And I certainly would rather offend people than offend God. And this is not something that you enjoy doing. If you do enjoy doing it, that's a whole other problem. Right? It's not something you enjoy doing. But there absolutely is a time and a place for it. It must be done. Why? To protect the precious flock of God that he purchased with his own blood. 
And do you know that tragically, everything that Paul warned them about actually happened in Ephesus? It actually happened. In his letters to Timothy, who was then the pastor of the Ephesian church, Paul condemned the false teachers who had arisen from within the Ephesian congregation, even naming some of them. So we have only to read both letters to Timothy and then the letter to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 to know that what Paul predicted came to pass. And perhaps it would not have if the pastors and elders had been more vigilant and took more seriously what Paul warned them about. You see, the church of Ephesus itself serves as an object lesson for us to watch and to warn. Paul wasn't exaggerating the threat, not one bit. The leaders needed to be on the alert so that the flock would be protected from savage wolves and and deceivers. So Paul has charged the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. They were to feed them and protect them. They were to warn the flock. And now he charges them to commit themselves to God and his word. Look at verse 32. He says, And now I commend you, or I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace. Knowing he had done all that he could do and that he would never see them again this side of heaven, Paul said, I now commend you to God. I don't commend you to a bishop or a denomination. I don't commend you to a committee or a congregation. I commend you to God because God is your shepherd. And that's what we must do with our children and with the people we serve. We love them. We set the example for them. We teach them. We warn them. But then there comes a time when we must say, I commend you to God. Ultimately, we must give them to God. Lord, Lord, they're in your hands. They're they're your sheep. Sometimes you feel like Moses when he said, Lord, this people you gave me. Lord, they're in your hands. Paul was going to be leaving them, but they had God who would always be there. And the future of the church belonged neither to the wolves nor with the shepherds, but with God. And they also had God's word, the word of his grace, which Paul says is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who were sanctified. So if they would cultivate their knowledge of God and his word, they'd become strong. They would be built up. The word of God would build them up because it's the source of spiritual life and spiritual growth, spiritual strength. The word of God is also the source of assurance, convincing them that they shared an inheritance along with all of God's people. And so if they were ever going to watch over themselves and the flock of God, if they were uh, ever going to watch over and warn the flock, they must commit their lives to the Lord and totally entrust themselves to God and to the word of his grace. And the application for us is that we too must totally entrust our lives to God and to his word. We must make good use of God's word. I mean, as Peter said, we're to desire the pure milk of God's word like a newborn baby desires milk. I mean, it's the Word of God that makes us strong. It's the Word of God that builds us up. The Word of God is a a light and a lamp unto our feet. The Word of God will keep us from sin. Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we should also keep our eyes fixed upon our eternal inheritance because as we do, The trials and the troubles of this life seem much lighter and easier to get through. We really do see them then as as we fix our eyes on our inheritance and upon Christ. We see, you know, these afflictions as momentary and light. So God placed, or Paul placed the Ephesian elders in the hands of God and, and under the word of his grace because programs can't do it. The spirit of the age can't do it. You know, slick marketing can't do it. Entertainment can't do it. Only God and the word of his grace can build you up and give you an inheritance in heaven. So when Paul leaves Miletus and commends the elders into the care of God and his word, he's not committing them to something passive. 
Because the Word of God is active and powerful. Paul says that the, the Word of His grace is a builder. It builds a useful structure out of a life of ruins. It builds design out of a life of confusion. It builds security out of fear and anxiety. It builds strength out of weakness. It builds permanence and stability out of wavering uncertainty. It builds beauty out of ugliness. The Word of God's grace is a master builder. And it's called a Word of grace because it always builds with the lousy raw materials in our lives. So Paul leaves the elders of Ephesus in the care of God and His Word, which is able to build them up, and in building them up, give them the inheritance among all those who are built or sanctified in this way. But Paul's not quite finished. He has one more thing to say before his final goodbye. Paul now charges them to follow his example of selfless giving. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Of course, those three things were signs of wealth and status in Paul's time. And here he says, look, I didn't covet anyone's wealth. He said, I wasn't here after anyone's money. And then he adds, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul says, you know, you know that with these own hands, I provided for my needs as well as for the needs of those with me. Well, in the city of Ephesus, Paul worked as a tent maker, supporting himself and others. Now, there were other times when Paul didn't work and was supported by the church, and he makes that clear, or he makes clear it in 1 Timothy 5, as well as other passages that the church should support the pastor financially. But in the city of Ephesus, Paul chose to support himself. And he appealed to them in verse 35 to follow his example. He said, In all things I have shown you that by By working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul not only supported himself and those with him, he also worked to help others in need because, as he reminds them and us, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Boy, if there was a a statement any more uh, diametrically opposed to uh, the thinking today, this is it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And this saying of Jesus isn't recorded anywhere else in the Bible. You say, well, how do we know Jesus really said it? Well, that's a good question. We know Jesus said it quite simply because Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us he said it. And Luke, writing this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote it down so we would have it. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Of course, Jesus' life was one long example of selfless, sacrificial giving. So was Paul. In fact, giving really summarizes Paul's life. He gave himself to God and his people. He gave himself to the ministry of the word. Paul gave himself with such intensity that he forgot himself. And that's a great problem with so many people today. They're so focused on themselves that they're absolutely miserable. And what they ought to be doing is focusing on Christ and on other people and forgetting about themselves. I mean, Paul was not in the ministry to build an earthly fortune like so many of the charlatans we see today. You know, they need you to give X amount of, so many people to give X amount of money so they can get that new jet they've been wanting. Well, Paul wasn't in the ministry to build an earthly fortune. He was in the ministry to give, up, to give of himself because he had his eyes set upon the inheritance that was laid up for him in heaven. He was laying up treasures in heaven. And what a difference it would make if we all would learn to think like that. But it's hard, isn't it? It's so hard to have that mindset. Because the world constantly bombards us with its values and philosophy that says, you know, you only go around once, so now 
Now's the time to make it. If you don't save it up yourself now, you'll never have it. You know, and the flesh is so drawn to all these things and not willing to give up one thing. But the Word of God says you can lay it up here on earth now. However, when you die, it'll be gone forever. Because it's literally true. You cannot take it with you. Or on the other hand, as the Word of God teaches, if you live for Him now, laying up treasure in heaven, you'll have treasure forever. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than just to continually take and take and take. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We must remember that Paul reminds his readers of this in the context of speaking to the leaders of the church. And Paul's point in quoting Jesus is, if you're in the ministry to get, if you're in the ministry to receive, then you're in the ministry for the wrong reason. Jesus says the blessings come to those who give. And our Lord said of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And those who are called to spiritual oversight should be those who serve, those who give. That that, that should be the, the character of their lives. In fact, that should be what characterizes the life of every single Christian. Christians should be givers, not takers. We should remember that we experience tremendous blessing when practicing generosity. I mean, Christians should set the example of grace-motivated generosity. And Jesus himself modeled this concept. He gave everything in order to help us in our poor, weak, and sinful condition. Yet as I look at much of the church today, I... I don't see a giving mentality. I see a receiving and a taking mentality. But you see, the truth is, the more we understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the more we understand, really understand His grace, the more generous we become. And anything else, we're just fooling ourselves. Let me ask you something, you know, very candidly. Do you really believe that the majority of people on Christian television are in the ministry to serve? Or do you get the idea that they want you to serve them by giving them your money? And most of these people will tell you it is more blessed to give than to receive, and if you'll just give to their ministries, you'll be blessed. And you know, even uh, solid evangelical ministries have gotten to the point of constantly uh, begging people for money. I get bombarded with uh, letters, uh, flyers, you know, seeking money for, for ministries that, I mean, you think are good. And they, so they drain off resources that should go to the local church to their multi-million dollar ministry. And they may not say that if you give to their ministry, uh, you'll be blessed. But they'll bless you with books and Bibles and other things to stroke your flesh and your ego. I remember being with an individual. We were at a conference speaking with someone who fairly high up in the leadership. And this individual uh, didn't that I was with didn't know this person on staff, and he said, and he said, Oh, you might know me. I'm so and so, and I give a lot of money to this ministry. Guy goes, I don't have any idea who you are. They don't know. And they don't care. They just want to keep the machine going. And it's sad. It's sad. Context, you've got to keep the context of this verse in mind. Paul was giving of himself, not asking for himself. 
So his final words, the Ephesian elders were, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that is the final word of God's grace from Paul to the Ephesian elders. And with that, Paul concludes his farewell. And now in verses 36 to 38, we have his final blessing and farewell. And when he had said these things, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And I cannot help but think what a touching scene this must have been. And we have no idea what Paul said in his prayer. We're not told, but no doubt these men were deeply touched as Paul poured out his heart to God for them and the churches they pastored. For God's grace and strength in their lives, for God's protection, for his wisdom and guidance and direction for them as they oversaw the churches which God had entrusted to their care. And we had finished praying, we read in verses 37 and 38, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They wept, obviously, because they loved Paul very much. They had spent three years with him as he taught them, encouraged them, strengthened them. They were also weeping because they knew, as Paul had said, that they wouldn't see him again. So they hugged him and kissed him. And these were no doubt strong men. Masculine men. But they were not ashamed to weep and to express their love in this way for the man who had led them to Christ and who had faithfully discipled them. He was their spiritual father, their spiritual mentor. And they were saying goodbye to him for the last time. You know, it's hard to say goodbye. Especially when you know that you won't see you know, this person, this friend, or, or this loved one again in this life. But praise God that we as Christians have the assurance that we will one day see our Christian friends and loved ones in heaven. And there will be a great and glorious reunion one day. So really for the Christian, it's, it's not goodbye, it's we'll see you later, right? Well, after saying their goodbyes, they accompanied Paul to the ship. So they parted with prayer, tears, and an ascending off party, believing that they would only meet again in eternity. And I can just picture them standing there as Paul sailed out of sight. You know why? They probably watched until they couldn't see the ship any longer. And then they turned and headed back to Ephesus, no doubt more determined than ever by the grace and strength that God would supply to do all that Paul had exhorted him to do. They were going to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. They were going to feed the flock and warn and protect the flock. They were going to commit themselves to God and his word that they might be built up. And they were going to follow Paul's example of selfless giving. You see, the word of God's grace had had built something beautiful out of Paul, who had been a legalistic murderer. And it can do the same for every leader in this church and for all the flock here and for anyone and everyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I would encourage you today to to seek the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. Cast yourselves upon the mercy of God because you have sinned against him. And you are on your way to an eternal hell apart from the salvation that he has to offer. And God freely offers to all men everywhere the forgiveness of sin and eternal life for all of those who will acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, turn from sin to Christ and ask him to save them and to forgive them. And he will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And so I would encourage you today, if you've never trusted in Christ alone, to do so today. Time is short. We don't know how short. Christ's return is, is getting near by the moment. We're closer today than we were yesterday. We're closer right now than we were this morning. And the fact of the matter is, God could call any one of us home right now. I mean, we're all one heartbeat away, one broken blood vessel away, one blood clot away from entering into eternity. And so the question is, where will you spend eternity? And for all of those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone, live for him. They're going to enter into his presence. And hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I look forward to that day. Don't you? Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.